Here we are, October 27, 2013, uh, lecture discussion number 129 on the book of Romans. And yes, are we still in Psalm 22? Yes, sorta. Um, and yes, sorta is not to be confused with yes, maybe. Yes, sorta carries the implication that I have a little small percentage of Psalm 22. I actually can find it in the lecture. And so it is, in fact, in today's lecture in some form, Psalm 22 is, uh, however minimal. Whereas, uh, yes, maybe is the truncated version, uh, as you know, of yes, maybe not, which can be defined as presenting the possibility of excluding completely Psalm 22 altogether. So I know the distinction is subtle, and of course I, I fabricated it entirely, all to say to you, yes, uh, I'm sticking to my thesis statement that Lecture 129 is within the Psalm 22 subset of the Romans 5, 12 through 14 section of the Book of Romans series, irrespective of how small the content is today. Which, as you know, if you were here for Lecture 128, uh, we are covering the, uh, well, we're going to center on Zechariah 12.10. I'll get to this in a moment. Zechariah 12.10. I made the comment, okay, I'll just blow away my notes right now. I made the comment earlier that if you could, if I had a church, if I had control of this building, which obviously I don't, I would get the biggest placard I could with the biggest letters on it today. I wouldn't have done it 20 years ago because I wouldn't have thought it was necessary, but it's clearly necessary today. And I would have Zechariah 12.10 as prominently displayed as I could. Because for whatever reason, it's, it's completely gone now. So Zechariah 12.10 is what, where our center is today, along with the typology of King Josiah, uh, which is uh, 2 Kings, uh, we began last week at 23, 21 through uh, 25. And if you remember, that is where God has a description of King Josiah. He said there's never been anybody like him to boil it down. No king before him, no king after him that did what he did. He is he is set above all of the kings of Israel. He's an extraordinary man. Think of who the kings are. Think If I asked you who was the greatest king in Israel, if I walked into any church in the world probably, say, who does God say was the greatest king of Israel? No one would have said Josiah, but it is. He's the great king. The one that there's never been one before him, nor one after him that turned towards God with all his heart and all his soul, like King Josiah. So he becomes very, very important, and you see him, again, uh, there's more information on him at Second Chronicles. Chronicles, sorry. Uh, not really fake, sorry. 35, 20 through 26, and Jeremiah 1, 1. Why Jeremiah 1, 1? We'll get to that in a moment. And then Second Kings, all of Second Kings 22, all of Second Kings 23, and then First uh, Kings 13. Okay, that's where we are. But we are centered on Zechariah 12:10. Zechariah 12:10 and Zechariah 12:11. Zechariah 12:11 sends you to King Josiah. That's how we get to Josiah. And 12:10 settles the dispute that we're going to talk about here in a minute. And Jeremiah 1.1 is where I go to defend my view that Jeremiah is the son of Hilkiah of 2 Kings 22.8. Not everybody agrees with me, but I throw it out there 
uh, so that you know that I have that position and that I believe I can prevail. But I'm not going to do that today. So just to recap just a bit, Zechariah 12.10, for those who, who were not here last week, this is what it says. This is why it should be on a plaque. It should be on the outside of the building, on the inside of the building. I should hand out Zechariah 12.10 cards today. So every time somebody says something to you that is... Uh, Janie was telling me about a conversation she had. I won't identify uh, who it was with, uh, so in case they ever hear these lectures. But somebody that uh, um, who needed a, a Jeremiah, uh, sorry, a Zechariah 12:10 card. So whenever you hear something like that from somebody, just say, "Here, this destroys what you just said." Anyway, Ze- Zechariah 12:10. To redo it, to reread, I'll read it here. And I, who's the I in the sentence? God is the I in the sentence. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And when I do that, God says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to pour out grace on the, on the house of David, on Israel. When I do that, when that happens, then they will look on me. So they will see me. As soon as I do that, they're going to look on me. Whom they pierced. So, what did he just say? It's as powerful a verse as there is in the Bible. He just says that the one that was pierced by the Romans on the cross, that was looked upon by the nation of Israel... That person is me. Who's me? God himself. Jerusalem 12.10 is a thus says the Lord. It comes out of Zechariah. What did I say? Jerusalem 12.10? Huh. More medicine. Zechariah 12.10 is a thus says the Lord. A real one. Not a fake one. We have lots of fake ones today. All of Zechariah 12 is a thus says the Lord. It starts with Zechariah 12.1. My point is that the Lord God of Israel, the Lord God Almighty, the great I Am, says as clearly as he could say it, and he wrote it down, that he is the one that is looked upon at the cross. He is the me. The one looked at, the one pierced. Israel looks at him. Rome pierces him. The theys are not the same they. And therefore, once I have that established, who is Jesus Christ then? Because he's the one on the cross. So he must be who? He must be the me. Who's the me again? God himself. It can't get any more clear than that. Marie was telling me about something uh, that Billy Graham said. <laughs> Just, whoa! I have learned not to be affected by by that anymore. I, I'm disappointed, but not affected anymore. Jesus Christ is, therefore, Jesus Christ is the God of Israel. Because he's the one that is looked on on the cross. And he's the one that the Romans pierced. He has to help them pierce him. Keep that in mind. And he's the me of Zechariah 12.10. So therefore, he's the God of Israel. Therefore, he's the Ancient of Days. Therefore, he's the I Am. Therefore, he's the creator of all things. Therefore, the, the me is Christ is God. 
That's why the Bible, the New Testament, calls him Jesus God. It's one word. No comma. Jesus God. No hyphen. It's all one word. And he is always God. You've heard me say it and say it and say it. He is always so, and especially so, during his crucifixion. Though always so does not need especially so. Does that make sense? I'd say it especially so because that inflames those who have the opposite view, or what's called the kenosis view. I won't put kenosis on the board, but it's Philippians 22. They say that Jesus Christ divested himself of his godhood. And you've had me, I've had letters on this, and I've had to deal with it before. How long does it take to divest yourself of infinity? It's ridiculous. It's a retarded mathematical premise. And anybody that says it just immediately identifies themselves as a fool. That's hard language from coming from a one-eyed fat man. I got that. But I, I just can't deal with it some days, and today's the day. Zechariah 12.10 destroys that kind of thinking. He did not divest himself of his godhood. It's impossible. What he did was he took off his robe. That's why Josiah is so important, because the key to Josiah is the one thing about him that he does. He has two chariots. When you know he has two chariots, then you know that Christ did not and could not, he cannot, divest himself of his godhood. But now you know he took his robe off. Because he was going to get in the second chariot. So when you understand Josiah, that clears up Philippians 2.7, and along with uh, uh, Zechariah's typology, I'm sorry, Josiah's typology, Zechariah 12.10, destroys the kenosis view. That is where Zechariah again 12.10 is where God says, that's me on that cross. Now let me say that again. That's me on that cross. So you've got to ask the question, which cross is it? Well, it's the cross that Christ was on. That's the cross. And last Sunday, we began the typology of Josiah, which we're going to continue today as well. But I wanted to restate the importance of Zechariah 12.10. God revealing that it is himself who is the one being crucified on that cross. The one whose crucifixion was so unbelievable. You can figure out which crucifixion it was. How many crucifixions did you have to choose from, by the way? You had to sort out through a whole bunch of crucifixions. Hundreds of thousands of them. But one of them was different. It's important to know that. One of them was so unbelievable, so extraordinary, so incomprehensible, filled with supernatural events and power. Which one was that? When you find that one, that's the one where God is on the cross. The me. It's not hard to find it. Lots of evidence which one is that cross. One crucifixion was made to be unforgettable by those Everybody who witnessed it, both the angelic realm and the human realm. Find that one. That's the Zechariah 12.10 one. And out of thousands and thousands of crucifixions, as I was saying. And by the way, that's the historical record. Thousands and thousands and thousands of crucifixions. One, one, only this one was start to finish orchestrated and controlled by God. Now, from, that's from our, I said that in a human perspective, orchestrated and controlled by God, because he is omnipotent from his perspective. But I say things in human ways to help people understand it. There's one of them that God, uh, 
selected out. And that was the one where he was on the cross himself. God says so. Zechariah 12.10. Am I repeating it enough? God exerted his control and authority over every tiny detail of one crucifixion in all of history. And and, and his purposes, uh, what he wanted to do with it. And slowly over the course of the proceeding of that crucifixion, where God is the one who has put himself there and is controlling it in every tiny, again, detail, somebody figured out who he was. Who figured that out? A bunch of people watched this one crucifixion where God was there, where he was on the cross, where he was the one, the me being crucified, that they looked at and pierced. Somebody figured it out. Who figured it out? Romans figured it out. Absolutely. They testified. This is God here. We've never seen a crucifixion like this. Somebody else figured it out before it even happened. Nicodemus figured it out. Joseph of Arimathea. They had the tomb ready. They had the oil ready. They knew what all the prophecies were. They'd studied their Josiah. I can promise you that. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. And they knew that this was God. How many have figured out it's God on the cross today? My goodness, it's ridiculous how few do. And I realize that not everyone shares my view of the crucifixion. Not everyone accepts the Zechariah 12.10 position. They don't think that it's God himself on the cross. And I find it to be astonishing. That's why I want to pass out Zechariah 12.10 cards. At least know the verse is there. Know that you are going against it. And I've asked myself over the years, how could... Just for example... I think I began, one of the first Old Testament uh, lectures I did was 1 Kings 13, 15 years ago or better. And I didn't have the response I have now. But how can you disregard Zechariah 12.10? Where he says, that's me. What more do you need to prove to you that God is on the cross? It's very difficult to find anyone who has a Zechariah 12.10 viewpoint anymore. Most have the opposite view. I'd say, if I had to estimate, 99% have the opposite view of the Zechariah 12.10 position in the church today. And that's not unexpected if we're in the end times. That's Revelation 3.16. And I no longer have any anticipation that I can move somebody off their long-held tradition that is... Um, anything other than the Zechariah 12.10 view. That, by the way, is a dishonoring to Christ. If you don't have the Zechariah 10 view, 12.10 view, then you have a dishonoring position on, on the crucifixion and a dishonoring position on the person of Christ. What you have, then, is the opposite of Zechariah 12.10. You have the afraid, uh, weak, despairing, pitiful, impotent Jesus convention. That's what you have. Marie was talking to me earlier, and, and that's the uh, that's what Billy Graham has, and that's discouraging to say the least. But it is not, uh, like I said, it no longer. I'm used to it. The the afraid, weak, despairing, pitiful, impotent Jesus convention is frankly a myth. It is an absolute myth. It's not defensible either doctrinally or logically. 
<coughs> it's predominant today. And as you also know, I'm currently engaged in an ongoing feud. I am with a prominent author who is promoting the Christ is pathetic on the cross view. Our tradition. And he's promoting it in his recent book uh, with the biblically illiterate title. And, and uh, I should note that the author is unaware that he's in a feud with me. <laughs> and I doubt that he'll ever be aware of it. Nonetheless, I see that as giving me a significant advantage, uh, by the way, (laughs) and his proper etiquette. Uh, I'm referring to Bill O'Reilly by his initials, Bill O'Reilly, in order to conceal Bill O'Reilly's true identity, though some of you have already guessed that Bill O'Reilly is secretly Bill O'Reilly, and so it goes without saying now. And, and for those of you who are cynically suggesting that I'm attempting to increase Internet downloads by continuing to refer to Bill O'Reilly's initials, I'm aghast at that, that you would even suggest that. You're impugning my motives, and, and that's deeply hurtful to me <laughs> and offensive, and I await your heartfelt apologies. Uh, please send them quickly. Anyway, Bill O'Reilly responded to an email, not... Not any of mine, obviously. I'm never going to do something like that. But he got a listener. Uh, he has uh, millions of listeners and a tremendous amount of influence, which is really sad, in my view, when he gets into theological issues like this. He is wholly unqualified to do so. But he doesn't know that, and he doesn't want to know that. And here he got a, an email from a listener who questioned the omission of the exchange between Christ and the second thief. Again, who is Christ? He's the me. He's God himself. So God has an exchange with the second thief. And, and this man uh, wanted to know why Bill, O'Reilly, uh, why Bill O'Reilly's uh, doctrinally illiterate entitled book omitted that. Let me... So I can refer to it by its acronym, Doctorally Illiterate Entitled Book. Okay. Thank you for laughing. I worked hard on that. Anyway, Bill (laughs) O'Reilly responded to this man who said, Why did you omit the exchange between Christ and the second thief? Remember, he omitted almost all of the seven sayings, but the guy wanted to know why the second thief exchange between God... And this man that wanted to be saved. And Bill O'Reilly responded once again, like he did before, that because the account of God's conversation with the second thief was only in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, Luke 23, 39 through 43. That is only where it is. I mean, when you start putting the word only in front of a, in front of a, it's only in the Bible. You're, you're in so much trouble, I can't even begin to, to help you. But he said, it's only in the Gospel of Luke, and therefore, Mr. O'Reilly said, it could not be included in the die book. As Bill O'Reilly did not consider the Gospel of Luke, he does not consider the Gospel of Luke to be sufficient testimony. He thinks the Gospel of Luke requires collaboration, you see. It can't be accepted as an authority. That's what he says. And obviously, you can recognize that kind of, uh, of thinking as dismissive of the Holy Spirit. He says as, prof- as clear as he can that the Bible is not God-breathed inspiration or Holy Spirit-inspired. 
That's, you have to say that when you're saying things like it's only in the book of Luke and therefore I don't accept it because it's not collaborated by some other man-made or, or man-formed uh, historical account. I submit that to reject the Holy Spirit authorship of the scriptures in the slightest way, and this is not in a slight way, it's in a, a massive way, is to enter into the death spiral of heresy. I don't think you have any hope otherwise. So certainly you're going to have doctrinal blindness as evident uh, from almost every word that Mr. O'Reilly utters in defense of his writings. Now, to be fair, he had an argument. He proposed the pedestrian, rudimental, and long-discarded view that the thief could not talk because of the suffocation characteristics of crucifixion. And uh, that, that would require two minutes of research to find out that you can't defend that position. Two minutes of research would have read uh, Bill O'Reilly to discover that the Romans routinely did what? They put a peg. Put a peg on the cross. They inserted a peg into the cross for the victims to rest upon. Why'd they do it? The peg, its whole purpose was is to prolong the suffering. That was the point of it. Eventually, they remove the peg, and, and, and then you're, now you're suffocating. You're in a tremendous amount of stress. But Christ, never in any stress. In fact, the Bible says the last thing he did was bow his head, which implies what? One of the last things he did. That meant he had his head up the entire time. He was stressless. That's the Zechariah 12.10. It's God there, view. Versus, what's the other word I want? I can't say it. I get in trouble. You know what I mean. The peg, by the way, is a great Bible symbol. If I had time, I'd, yeah, I might. Let's just, let me just show you this symbol. It's a great symbol. To remove the peg is so silly. It is, like I said, indefensible. To not even know it's there and to defend it, uh, to say that Christ couldn't speak because he was suffocating. My goodness, he's the breath of life. But if you want to say, okay, the thief couldn't speak. Well, he had a peg. Know what you're doing before you write some dumb book. Again. Doctrinal blindness comes when you reject the Holy Spirit authorship of the Scriptures. You can't write a historical book. You'll get it completely wrong. You can't write anything but wrong. Yeah. Isaiah um, 22, uh, verse 23 through 25. I'll read it. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about himself. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. That's the prophecy, by the way. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups of all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Got to know about the peg. We'll do the peg next week. 
I said, it's a great, great Bible prophecy and symbol. But two minutes is apparently too much to ask of somebody uh, insistent on being habitually in error and obliviously proud of that same error. As an aside, the pathetic Christ view, um, and I wrote it here on the margin, is most often accompanied by the following, and I'm going to quote it. I'm not going to tell you uh, which uh, theological, supposed theological book it's from, because I don't want you to own it. I don't want anybody to know about it, but I'm going to quote the book. This is what it says. This is the pathetic Christ view, the opposite of the Zechariah 12.10 view. I quote, After being flogged and forced to carry his own crossbar, though not a heavy piece of wood. So far, that's true except for the part of what? Forced. How do you force our omnipotent God to do anything? What, are you an idiot? The answer, yes. Nod your heads. After being flogged and forced to carry his own crossbar, though not a heavy piece of wood. That's true. Crossbar is not a heavy piece of wood. I have the baton twirling view on that, as you know. It was nevertheless far too heavy for God. They don't write God. It's far too heavy for Christ. Christ was fastened to his cross and left alone to die a death from which he could not escape. That's the end of the quote. I could barely read it without laughing at it. There's, that sums up the opposite view. That's what they think. They outnumber us by probably a hundred million. I think we might have the Zechariah 12.10 view in the United States, I'm going to tell you, it's probably less than a thousand people now. The other view is hundred million. That's where we are. I hope there's more. I don't want to sound like Elijah. Find out later. There's a whole bunch of them. But I haven't seen them. I don't find them. And that's just what's happening he, by the way, is the worm, Psalm 22, 6, right? He fastens himself to the wood. You can't fasten him. He has to fasten himself. He, he is not afraid. He is not alone. That is not possible. Death, it, he can't escape from death. Just listen to what you write. You write something like that, you've destroyed salvation. If he can't, he does not have the power to escape from death, then no one has any power and we're all doomed. It's, it's a mess. They still say it. They like saying it. And you cannot, you cannot make omnipresence alone. But they don't know that he's God. They don't want him to be God. They think he's just a guy on the cross who's miserable. Okay. Another prominent author is also, unbeknownst to himself, in conflict with me. There seems to be a lot of them now. And that's uh, Dr. Charles Krauthammer, who I will likewise refer to as Bill O'Reilly. I'm kidding, of course. Maybe. Uh, Dr. Krauthammer... Uh, inserted himself into the fray by raising Fermi's paradox. Let me write that down so you can 
Fermi's paradox. Um, what he didn't do, what he neglected to do, I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let me make sure I'm okay if I start running off here. Yes, he, he, ref- he re- refused or didn't know, neglected, I don't know. Maybe he did it intentionally or did it unintentionally, but he did not. When you raise Fermi's paradox, you have to um, you have to accompany it with. Oops, let me spell it correctly. I got it out of order. With a rare earth hypothesis. I'm printing fast, so it looks terrible. So Fermi's paradox and the rare earth. Earth hypothesis, they're associated, they're compatriots. Uh, difficulties uh, uh, immediately arise if you begin to talk about Fermi uh, by itself or uh, reference it alone. Essentially, what it is, uh, so you know, Enrico Fermi was a physicist in about 1950, so it's relatively new, and he had this great problem that he could not reconcile. He could not figure out uh, the vastness of the universe and the silence of the universe, or the, also known as the great silence. In other words, how do these two things happen? I have this amazing vast universe, but yet it is silent. And that can't be true because the vastness should invalidate or should eliminate the silence. And what is meant by that is the sheer magnitude, uh, numerical magnitude of the universe we might have as many as a trillion galaxies. We're in one galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. There might be a trillion of them out there. Every galaxy has hundreds and hundreds of billions of, of uh, celestial uh, bodies. So think about how big this is. And Fermi understood how big it was, and he, could, he said, how can it be silent when there's this much numerical magnitude? It's ridiculous the size of uh, creation. Uh, the estimate is, and, and we don't know because we don't, we're not certain how far we can even see, but they estimate there is a hundred sextillion, a uh, hundred sextillion celestial bodies, stars. That exceeds the number of grains of sand. So start counting sand. When you get up to 99 sextillion, give me a call. I'll come and help. That's the problem. And so we have to start to deal with the obvious question uh, right off the beginning. But again, Fermi could not figure out how I could have a universe this big, and yet it was silent. And I want you to ask, what is God doing? What's he saying? What is he teaching when he makes it so huge? What's the lesson? Why so massive a creation? Because you see there is an alternative, right? Obviously not because he's omniscient God. But assume the hypothetical and say, why not just our solar system? Why not just the sun and the earth? Just those two. Because that ultimately is what Enrico Fermi asked. Fermi saw a paradox between the numerical value of the universe and the fact that there is no other life existing with the exception of the earth. Every brilliant physicist and scientist have recognized Fermi's paradox. And that we've, uh, by the way, spent billions of dollars trying to find somebody. We have huge antennas and stuff all over the place. Different projects. Fermi assumed the mediocrity principle. 
What he meant by that is that the earth is just merely typical. It's mediocre. There's a mediocrity to it. It's mediocre. It's Therefore, there must be what? If this is a, a mediocre earth, it's not rare. See the difference? Not the rare earth hypothesis, but Fermi said no. Mediocrity principle. There must be hundreds of billions of them out there. There has to be hundreds of millions just in the Milky Way because of the numerical amount of bodies that are there. So if it is merely typical of the Earth, there must be billions of Earths, uh, Earth-like uh, uh, bodies within similar systems in the universe. And the great, uh, again, a great number just within our Milky Way galaxy. But there is no such evidence. There's none. So uh, Fermi also assumed 13.8 billion years of universe history, another factor uh, that would suggest a multitude of other civilizations just like us, another Earth, especially if you cling to the monistic evolutionary uh, paradigm uh, for spontaneous eruption of life from rocks, which, as you know, is uh, contrary to the law of biogenesis. But you could see how a, mon a monistic uh, evolutionist would say 14 billion years is plenty of time uh, with trillions of bodies for other civilizations to arise, and yet silence. The great silence. In spite of the assumed mathematics, no incontrovertible evidence of any life or civilizations has been detected. None. We appear to be what? Absolutely, completely alone. Trillions and trillions. Massive creation. One place. Life is only here. On earth. Fermi said, that's a paradox. We should have heard from somebody by now. But the rare earth hypothesis people say, nope. This is rare. Dr. Kronhammer supposed that other civilizations have arisen out there in space. But they all did the same thing. They all subsequently destroyed themselves as they began to become more and more technically advanced. And that will uh, likewise be the fate of mankind. And thus, uh, every there's been, by his reasoning, there's been perhaps a million civilizations just like ours. And they all conveniently uh, destroy themselves. And that's gymnastic logic right there. Uh, I mean, that's twisting yourself as much as you can, to say the least. But he assumed that would likewise perhaps be the fate of mankind. We will reach a technological capability and then we will kill ourselves all off. I, I submit that the rare earth hypothesis is the solution, but I have modified it uh, a bit. I've helped it. I made it more focused. They won't appreciate it, I know, but I've renamed it, the rare earth hypothesis, that is. I renamed it to the life only on earth certainty principle. So here comes now the true question, the why. Why is there only life on this one planet in all of creation? Why did he do it that way? If I'm correct, duh then it's not the rare earth, it is the only place 
where there is life. And this amazing size. Why did God create this mass that we humans describe as infinite? It's not infinite, by the way. But to us, it seems infinite, the universe. And yet, he placed the conditions for life only in this one place. This one place has life. Why did he do that? Consider the contrast, if you will. 100 sextillion on one side. Okay, I'll do it this way. I have 100 sextillion over here. 100 times 10 to the 72nd exponential notation. And over here, I have 1. 100 times 10 to the 72nd to 1. That's quite a contrast. What's his point? Hopefully you can see the pattern. How many crucifixions did I have? Hundreds of thousands, probably. Maybe millions. And you had to find what? You had to find one. Because there's one where God is on the cross. Thousands of men carried their crossbeam through Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands of men had signs around their necks. Identifying their crime, by the way. And they were led by the executioners. And that was a frequent, commonplace, antiquities of the Jews, Josephus verified event. Happened a hundred times a day. But this, but in that mass of crucifixions, there's one crucifixion. And this time the condemned man was really God-man. God in the flesh. And his sign, by the way, did he have a crime on his sign? No. He's the one with no crime on his sign. What did he have? He had a title. King of the Jews. Pilate made sure there was no crime on that side. I have great hope for Pilate, by the way. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him there. And he wasn't being led by the executioners. This is the one where he's doing the leading. His is the only life, by the way. If I make, so I can just take the cross of, uh, crucifixion and I can put hundreds of thousands over here. Okay, millions even perhaps, that many, I don't know, but I'm close. Okay, I'll, I'll make it hundreds of thousands. And then over here, I got one. I hope you start to see that pattern because that's the way he does things. Why does he do it that way? He's trying to make it what? As clear, thank you, and as obvious as he can make it. And so everybody should spot it. Look, all i got to do is find the one. Nope. Watch a movie. They make the crucifixion of Christ identical to the same as every other crucifixion. And they do it on purpose. So that what happens? What's the result of their stupid movies or their stupid books? Can I say stupid enough? They obscure who God is. You can't find him, can you? It's what they're doing. They may not know it. It is what they're doing. His is the only life. How many billions of human beings am I going to have before it's all done here? Right now, i got probably eight billion alone. 
How many billions did I have before uh, Henry Morris uh, did the math on the prior to the flood? He, he estimated there was seven to eight billion people on the earth at the time of the flood. How many billion do I got now? Seven to eight billion. How many have died up to this point? By the way, I think upwards of 90, 97, 98 percent of all people who have ever lived post-flood are alive today. So, how many, uh, how many of those lives were really life? How many of all the people who were born after the fall, post and pre-flood, had life? One. There's one life. The rest of us have what? We have, uh, we have this death problem. He's the only life. Of the billions and billions of lives, the only life that was dismissed as an act of will, by the way. He dismissed his own life as an act of will. The person had control of his own life. And he resurrected himself as an act of will also. He, had that, he has that power. He can't escape death. What kind of foolish, illiterate statement is that? Look at John 10:18. He'll tell you what he can do or what he did. The pattern contrast is repeating. That's my point. Billions and billions versus this one. This unique characteristic. You've got to understand it. You must defend it. Christ stands alone. You can't have him like everybody else. Ever. And yet he's human. But he's perfect humanity. And any and all who say otherwise cannot be given respect. The stakes are too high. It's life or death. He made himself singular so everyone would find him. People who say otherwise obscure him. For the purpose of what? What's the result? Death. And all of us have death. And we have to point to the one, the only one who can give life. To diminish the only one who is life, to describe him as the same as us. Mediocre. Typical. The mediocrity principle. That is blasphemy, folks. Dead, flat, Blasphemy. No other way. Thank you. Okay. Zechariah 12.10. Should be on the plaque. I wrote right here. Should be on a plaque in every church in the world. Uh, it's me. Last week I did Josiah. God's saying it's me. Second Kings 21-25. Now, really fast. Josiah typology, if you weren't here, just like you have to know Zechariah 12.10 and you have to know that Zechariah 12.11 sends you to Josiah. You have to know this. I know I say that a lot. The Lord tells me they don't have to know. Yes, you do have to know. I'm right about that. Josiah had a characteristic about him. He disguised himself. Did I spell it? No, I tried to put an H in disguised. Disguised. Himself. There's where the H came in, right there. Very important. Put an X by that box. You've got to know that. He hid himself. And then he got out of his king chariot. Okay? Got out of his king chariot, Isaiah 6, Philippians 2, 7, and he got into a common chariot. So he's disguised. What does that tell you about Christ? He's going to get out. He's going to set his kingship down, or his robe, if you will. He's take his robe off, and he's going to disguise himself, and he's going to get into a chariot. 
And you have to know it's him. He's going to do some stuff so that you do know it's him. That's two characteristics of Josiah that are critically important. Josiah disguised himself. He got out of one chariot and went into the other. And you have to know as well that when Israel finally figures out that it was God himself on the cross, the God of Israel, they're going to mourn. They're going to be ashamed that they never figured it out. That's my goal for you, everyone listening, internet and everyone here, that none of you stand in front of that cross ashamed that you didn't know who he was. And you're going to be, there's going to be a big pile of people over there that are ashamed. Some of the greatest theologians, some of the greatest evangelists, some of the great pastors, if you want to call anybody great, I don't think he'll do it. You don't get to, this is like the first question on the test. Don't even finish, don't even try another question if you can't figure this out. Do you know who he was? He disguised himself. Why did he disguise himself? I talked about the typology of the Ark of the Covenant. Covered it with skins to hide it so you couldn't see it as it moved through Israel. You have this disguising element that is in God. Hiding himself. Hid himself as a what? As an infant child. Who figured out that it was... Did anybody figure out that the infant child was God himself? Yes! Who? Simeon. And it is not a coincidence that Simeon the Cyrenian is carrying a crossbeam. And I'll promise you, he figured out this was God himself, too. Just as the Romans did. I think people figured it out, but it's very, very few. How can that be? But at least know this about Josiah. Josiah disguised himself, and he got in a common chariot. And that there's this mourning for Josiah when he was killed. Because Josiah then put himself in the front of the army, as I said last week, and, and attacked. And no one knew it was the king. Okay? Certainly not on the other side. So uh, that's critical information. Those critical prophecies about Christ hidden in Josiah's life. Now we're going to add some more critical prophecies that are contained in the life of Josiah. He's an amazing story. He gives us great details. He explains what God himself Jesus Christ did and said why he did it and say it, said it, um, especially on the cross. And then we have to get into the mystery, 1 Kings 13, of the unnamed prophet. There's a mystery there about a prophet who's unnamed, who comes and, by the way, prophesizes that there will be somebody born that will be a great king. And, that, and he prophesies by name. He says, someday there will be somebody named Josiah that will be king. 300 years before it happened. And then he makes a mistake, by the way, uh, and we'll get to that next week. But we have to know about him. And that's, uh, I said that's where we're going to start today, but I'm not because of my time constraint. Uh, I'm going to move on. Josiah, just know that Josiah is named. Number three, he's named. Ask the obvious question. He's specifically named in Scripture. What's the obvious question? Who else is specifically named in Scripture? Before he comes. Josiah is one of those. What is the connection between the unnamed prophet that, that tells you that Josiah is coming and Josiah? That, that, by the way, is 2 Kings 23, 17, and 18. Because Josiah goes to the grave of the unnamed prophet. Okay? And says it does something there. Now, we're going to read little Josiah. 2 Kings 22. One through eight. 
To figure out the crucifixion, you have to study Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. 22-1, Second Kings. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozgah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. How's that for a tombstone inscription? And again, God declares to him, declares of him, he was the greatest of all the kings of Israel. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah, so he's what now? He's 26 years old. That the king set Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, what's the house of the Lord, by the way? There's only one house of the Lord. Any, any church in town or any church in the world that says, we're the house of God. No, you're not. The house of God is in Jerusalem. It's the temple. The only one. There you get the drift. There's a lot of ones. Figure out which one's the one. Verse 4. Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hands of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord, doing the work to repair the damages of the house, to carpenters and builders and masons, to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hands because they deal faithfully. So far, what have you got there? He goes and he says to his assistant, Shaphan, go find the chief priest, Hilkiah. Give him money. By the way, that money has to be spent on fixing God's house. The one house, the temple, because there's damages and we've got to buy and materials and hire people, carpenters. But don't worry about any accounting because these guys do a really good job and they deal faithfully. He's 26 years old and this is probably the first time he's ever dealt with church accounting. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, says to Shaphan, the scribe. So the scribe, this guy's a powerful man, right-hand man to the king. He's going to the priest, who's a powerful man. And when he shows up, this is what the priest says. I found the book. I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan read it. Uh-oh. We have huge problems. What Hilkiah did is fantastic, by the way. Absolutely fantastic to, to, to go ahead. Josiah figures out that they aren't faithful with the money or anything else. And by the way, when Hilkiah finds the book, what else does he have to find when he finds the book? What is the book? It is the handwritten manuscript, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, handwritten by Moses. Where is it? It's in the Ark of the Covenant. He found the Ark of the Covenant 
It had been lost over a hundred years or more. And totally discarded for probably two or three hundred years. They weren't doing anything, the book says. Hilkiah found the book. He found the ark. He found what else? He found the two stone tablets. Handwritten by God himself. He found the rod of Aaron. He found jars of manna. How freaked out is he? He is definitely realizing things are about to change. And he has the book. I'll read it again. Then Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord and gave the book to Shaphan and Shaphan read it. And Josiah, when he finds out, he begins to mourn. He tears his clothes. He realizes once he finds out what's in the book, once he found out that that the book existed, they start reading the book. They go to a they go to Huldah because there aren't any prophets but this one woman. She knows what's, what the consequences are now. She, not, she doesn't have to read it. She knows what's in it and why it's in it and what it means. By the way, how many times in the Bible has God used a woman to speak, especially to the nation of Israel? Keep reading, but we're out of time. I'm just going to tell you this. Josiah, the king who would come, who was named 300 years, the king who is described as humble, who has said that there is no king like him who turned with all his heart and all his soul to God, not before and not after, the greatest uh, believing king in the history of the nation of Israel, named 300 years before he came to power, uh, the king who was humble, who wept, who tore his clothes. How long did it take him to read the book? Anyway, he was told by God, Josiah was, that he would die before judgment would come on Israel. So, Josiah now knows something. He's 26 years old when he finds out that he's going to die. I'm going to tell you that he found out, he knew exactly how old he was going to be when he died. He ruled for 31 years. Made him what? 39. He's got 13 years, and he starts doing his job. He's dead man walking, and he begins to rid Israel of evil. He goes in and cleans out the temple of God, the house of God. Cleans it out. Does that remind you of anybody? He takes the priests that have not been dealing so faithfully. He burns all their stuff. He burns them. He had a task, and he begins completing his task immediately. He completely rededicated, not rededicated, he completely dedicated his life because he found the book. And he knew that it was true. And he knew what was a lie because he had the book to tell him. He became one who saw and who believed. By the way, what do we have? We have a copy of the what? The book. But Josiah did when he realized that it was God when he found the original copy, the original manuscript.
when he found the stone tablets. Totally changed everything he thought, everything he did. And he knew he was going to die. And he knew when. And he went obediently to his death. God promised him, you will die before I judge Israel. And he said, that's great. He's an extraordinary man of God. And he becomes this fantastic prophecy of Christ on the cross. That's why we have to study him. When you do, you no longer have any view of the crucifixion except the Zechariah 12.10, 12.11 view, which is what we should have. Let's rise. Read this minute.